from Dragon360, this is Digital Banter, a podcast focused on modern marketing tactics and driving real business results. And now, here are your hosts, James and Zach. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Digital Banter. Again, the number one podcast in our hearts. As always, I'm Zach. And of course, with me is James. How's it going, everybody? So we're we're taking a, a different spin, right? We've had back to, well, not back to back guests, but we have guests quite often. We're getting back to really why you're here, James and I. You don't need anybody else. Um, doesn't mean we won't have guests in the future, but getting back to our roots. We're kind of tackling an interesting topic because you could almost argue it's five topics in one podcast, but the idea of it is one. One setting that I think James and I compiled, got together, and these are some of the biggest challenges a lot of B2B marketers are having. So really our our overall goal today is to go over what we have found to be very common top five challenges for B2B marketers. And a lot of these will go beyond just B2B marketers, but that is our real focus here. So some of these challenges, you can twist them into your own really industry or spin and however you want. But at the end of the day, keep in mind, we're focused on a B2B centric idea right now. So really the first one chalks it up to customer intelligence. We, we hit this on the head a lot. You have to know your customers and take the time to find out what their true pain points are. You may have an idea of what they are, but you'll never truly know what they are unless you actually talk to them, understand your customer, and more than just a a client coming through the door or paying the bill every month. You really have to understand and get a deeper knowledge of what it is, but then also on the reverse side of that, Be willing and open to the differences. And that's not always easy. James, you were talking earlier in our production meeting more about you need to tackle resistance to change head on. And I think that's a lot of where I think a big focus of this comes into play. Yeah, I think a big thing that B2B marketers in general don't understand, I don't want to say don't understand, but nobody really wants to talk about is the number one pain point of any customer is typically resistance to change. In the software space, I think it's it's really good here to lead off with an example. Uh, the biggest problem with software is like if when you are getting software that's going to help your company, it's going to help your project management be so much smoother, X, Y, Z, But there's a huge barrier to entry of, hey, I have to learn how this thing works. I have to learn how this software works. And I think generally speaking, because of whether it be egos or or whatever it may be, this is a big thing that customers don't tell you because you're always competing against an existing solution and an existing solution that's been ingrained in a business for who knows how long. And... Yes, your product may be better, newer, have more features, have more features that solve their specific problems. But at the end of the day, they have to onboard that solution. They have to train their employees on how to use it. And it's it's completely different. And I, I have to say, as somebody who leads a team and is reviewing tools all the time, 
I mean, any anybody on my team will probably tell you this. I, I have a level of resistance to change. And we were onboarding new reporting tools, for example, right? And I, I was resistant to move from one thing to another. And the big reason is because I had to learn a completely new system. Now that I've learned the system, yes, things are better. But certainly when in the buying process, like that was the number one thing that I had to deal with as a manager is trying to not only manage resistance of change for myself, but also all of the other members on the team. And I, again, I, I think it gets overlooked because of egos where we try to focus on what makes our product unique and different, pricing and commitment. And we'll kind of get into what some of the other common pain points are in a bit. But the number one pain point is resistance to change and educating someone on how that system works. And I think that as marketers, if we can do a better job of introducing that in the sales process in a way that we can kind of get that onboarding moving moving a little bit faster, that's going to help. It's going to help the brands that we're trying to sell kind of incorporate that more easily. So if they have a demo that they can share with their team and say like, hey, look, this is how easy it is to use. Things like that go a long way in the sales process. I, I want to speak on this. I think relating to what you said, it's more than just a demo that's going to solve this problem. It, to get really into it, it goes back to really, if you were to think about it, some very common sales techniques. And my background is I have also done sales for you know retail stores. I've done sales on an agency level. At the end of the day, the fundamental is there. And, and any, like let's just say, sales director or CRO is going to tell you is you have to build an emotional connection to this project or this product. And I want to speak to this. When I was back in my early career, starting out, to be honest, with a lot of local companies, we were looking for a software that ultimately would streamline our projects because there was a lot of them with little spend. So we didn't want to necessarily put a ton of labor into all this stuff. The best demo I ever got is they told us to export our client list with all relevant information we would need. They uploaded it in there and did a demo with our real data. Now, it wasn't all of our data. It was a small sample set, but they connected and said, okay, you guys are currently doing this. Here's how ours will do this for X client, and here's what it really looks like. So one, beyond just saying, okay, yeah, we're going to use this big name in our demo. Look at how much they're doing. It took our real data, made us take a look at this. And be like, oh, this is really what it can do for us in this exact scenario that we need it for. I'm not saying that's always possible. But when you put that emotional connection in there, and a lot of times, right, in software, you can't physically hand them software. I don't even think people sell disks anymore. Even if you see them on the shelves, it's a code that you do online, right? And so the idea of getting an AOL disk in the mail for, or from Blockbuster just doesn't exist anymore. You know, you're going to have something that's not physical, but you need to still put it in their hand. And so you have to strategize how to do that. And again, I relate back to that idea because at the end of the day, we looked at four different products. That's the one we chose because they related it back to us. And I guarantee subconsciously, we were always biased to them because we saw our own data in the mix. Again, depending on the size and what type of software you have, especially the 
background of that data. Maybe you can't physically do that without NDAs and all this stuff signed in beforehand. But think about how you can get to that level with them. So yes, there is always going to be that resistance to change because again, the biggest resistance to change is almost always, yeah, I can spend the time to learn it. Do I want my entire team to freak out about this, right? How can I implement this at a larger scale internally, not just, okay, I need to get my head wrapped around this as James was speaking about. As James said, another big one is always pricing and and commitment. To be honest with you, pricing is one of those things, again, it goes back to just sales fundamentals. And I'm not here. I'm not a sales coach. I, I am by far the best at sales. I, I, I am not the best at sales. I'm not going to say it. Um, I can't. I, I probably would get outsold, I should say, on many levels. But again, the emotional connection is there. When there's an emotional connection, price is almost a sub-factor because at the end of the day, if they see this idea of this is going to save me X amount of hours or X amount of employees doing this mundane job or a whole list of things, price becomes almost an afterthought and they'll find a way to make it work if it's the right solution internally. Maybe you'll even replace two pieces of software that they're using, which hit or miss if that's good or not. That's for the business owner to decide. But at the end of the day, that's a win-win, right? Yeah. On the price side, I I think there's two sides of it. You can depend, and this is where what you're selling or what, what, whatever the product is there, there are two different ways to look at it. Like what you said, if you build up enough emotional commitment to a decision, pricing isn't important, but at the same time, and this is where we're talking about specifically, I feel like you see this a lot more in B2B than making an impulse purchase for yourself, where you have to convince others to make a decision. That's where having transparent pricing is is very Absolutely. important because I, if a team member brought me a tool that they wanted to use and it was like $10,000 a month, like, I mean, I, I could tell you before before you even brought it to me that we're not, <laughs> it's not going to be something that we're going to invest in because it's not it's just not in the budget right now. Um, yeah. Versus, yeah, we've invested in a bunch of tools for this podcast and very didn't blink twice because they had 30 day outs. They were inexpensive. They're easy to use. I mean, there's, there was a lot that goes into it, but it's a lot easier to make that decision than something that has a long-term commitment and a heavy price tag. Absolutely. And we're not saying discount your own value of your product, right? You don't have to follow, let's say, the Adobe method where all of a sudden they have a a cloud suite of things for one price month, right? Adobe's huge. They can do that. They've moved past the $500 software that you have to upgrade every year or a couple of years. Now they understand what people need, and they've opened up that to more than just professionals. Now you see it being used in universities, different things like that. But that's Adobe, right? They're huge. We're not saying you can do that, but if you follow something familiar or similar and you almost have so upfront that before they're even talking to someone, they can make their decision if this is worth going down that path, that saves you a lot of time too, right? Maybe there'll be a sale in the future, but at this time, having transparent pricing is going to help you. As you said, one of the biggest things that we see here is with these pain points is it's always, we're going to save you time and money. And I don't know how many times in podcasts we have shit on this USP because everyone does that. At least they should. So you have to find other pain points to relate to. 
Your software may, in the industry, be the best time saver. It may be the best money saver. But everyone is so tired of hearing it because they've been promised it in almost every software that they choose. So relate it back to the other pain points. What are those pain points? Well, go to the source. Why did customer X come to you? How are they using it? What specific use case that they were shown or demoed or even maybe discovered on their own? Maybe you have like a live demo that they can go in and play through a playground, should I say. Um, and they discovered, oh, wow, you can solve this problem too. It might even be pain points you didn't even know. Maybe it was just a slight update you did to your software, but maybe it means the world to them. And if it means the world to them, odds are there's at least a couple more people out there that have those same issues. Yeah, Zach, to add to this, if, if I was to break down, we really covered three things here. Tackling resistance to change, pricing and commitment, and uh, really what your true unique selling points are. If I was to put this into some sort of framework as far as like what is the order in which I would focus, th- focus on messaging and, and things like that, uh, obviously – your unique selling points are what get somebody what gets somebody interested and what gets somebody in the door. So that has to be first and foremost what the most what what the most important thing that you focus on in your marketing messaging is. The next and just because so that even though that's not the biggest pain point, you have to get somebody interested. And the next point pain, pain point that you should immediately be looking to tackle and cr- provide answers to is that resistance to change piece. And this is where online demos, freemium models, trials, all of that stuff is extremely important. But also like, I mean, think about a guide to like art, building an onboarding guide, building a, you know, think about the organizational transformation and how, how you can answer to that. And then pricing and commitment is kind of the last thing, because like you said, at Everybody is looking for transparent pricing and commitments, but like you said, there's a lot of things that you can do building up to that. So I know that a lot of things are custom these days, and sometimes you do have to dance around that one a little bit just because there is custom pricing based on needs and things like that. But if you can cover those first two of like pain points to get them in the door and then immediately tackle that resistance to change, that's going to speed up your sales process so much. Absolutely. Right. And one thing I've seen, because there are a lot of solutions out there that do have this, we build custom tailored solutions around you. But I would guarantee that your business has some sort of minimum. And I've seen this before where it says starting at blank for X size businesses, because what they've done is they found kind of an average or they actually have the minimums put out of here's the base model of what you would get for this size business and having that out there. Sometimes even just a sliver of transparency also helps on that level. Again, it, you may actually have to tailor the solution and the price to their organization for a lot of things. Maybe it's based on users, right? You don't know how many users they're going to have. Server bandwidth on your end as well factors into that, right? There's a lot of things that maybe the customer doesn't realize, but having some sort of minimum transparency out there will definitely help. Or let's say there really is no true minimum that you have and that it truly is a full custom suite, having them understand how you build your pricing and why they need to talk to sales about it or to discuss this, right? If you truly do a tailored solution because and have it on your website, we can't give you the price because it's based on these five factors. They can go into the call with their salesperson and says, hey, 
here's all the information. Can you build me something? Sure, I'll talk to you in a business day or two. I don't know how long it'll take them. Hopefully not long. But at the end of the day, that also gives them a heads up of what they can be expect to be asked on their sales call or initial visit call or whatever you want to call it. So, Yeah, and I think that that, like, that is something that's extremely important when you're in the service industry. I'll say service industry, meaning yeah. professional services. So I, I feel like this one, more than any of them, we relate to as an agency because everything that we do as an agency is custom to the business that we're serving, right? Everybody has a different set of obstacles and solutions. And don't get me wrong. Like we have our core pricing for paid advertising, content marketing, strategy, project management, whatever it may be. Um, But, you know, that also scales with how much work it is. I mean, quite frankly, like some clients you can tell right away are more demanding than others. And, you know, they're priced accordingly, depending on size of the business, amount of work, amount of all the unique pieces to the client that you're working with, as well as the services that are going to drive the best results for them. Absolutely. This kind of also leads to our second challenge for B2B marketers is balancing quick wins versus long-term growth. Um, There's always going to be the low-hanging fruit, and you can utilize um, easy demand capture activities, much Google search, utilizing data from like review sites, buying that data, utilizing uh, what's it called, like Zoom info list. I know there's a ton of other competitors to that too. That's just a main one out there. But understanding that some of your best potential customers aren't going to come from these quick wins. It really is a, a long race, if you were to put it, of understanding, and we've talked about this before, the nurturing process, building trust, building rapport, uh, long-term strategies. I would say ninety-nine percent of the time, always win. I am. I never seen one epically fail. Yeah, balance <laughs> balancing quick wins versus long-time growth is probably the number one thing that we struggle with our clients to yep. figure out where to focus um, because. Typically, when you hire, again, when you hire an agency, they come to you and they feel like they have a problem that they need to solve. And they have a problem that they need to solve today because they're not hitting our targets. They're not growing as fast as they think they should be. So even in that, like, there's a level of, hey, like, we need to align on what our KPIs are, what our goals are for the future. And then then kind of have that moment where you come to reality and figure out whether or not it's realistic or not. I think what is what is tough is that there's often a very heavy focus on demand capture activities and what you know what can because demand capture activities are what you can do right now. Yep. Building for long-term growth is completely different than just capturing people who are already searching for your products and services who are already visiting review sites, comparing different products to an extent, if you're a new brand or or startup, you might even be late to the game or have a tougher hill to climb in some of those demand capture activities, such as search, right? Search is typically pretty well established. Um, You know, there's, I mean, in the most B2B stuff is like pretty expensive on the search side too these days. There's a lot, there's a lot to balance there versus 
the companies who focus on their long-term strategy almost always win. That's assuming that you have a good product, a good price, and you have a position in the market. Um, it's <laughs> again, I don't, I'm not sure why we see, I know why we see it because there's a lot of, there's a lot of executives who want results right away. And it's one of those things where you need to build for the long term. Education, educational campaigns, prospecting campaigns, demand gen campaigns, whatever you want to call them, is what is going to drive long term growth. Because like we've talked about in the competitive atmosphere, like if you're not growing demand for your product, it's you're just fighting with everybody else for the same demand that's already out there. You're trying to steal market share versus creating your own market share. And if you create your own market share, there's going to be far more upside than just playing, getting in the dogfight and fighting everybody else. Absolutely. You actually nailed it on the head of something I was going to mention is this channel is not necessarily just for marketing teams, right? Sometimes this is for the marketing leaders, an, an internal challenge of how do I make Mr. CFO, how do I make Mr. President, Mr. CEO happy by saying, hey, we're going to focus on the long term here. We may not see a ton of SQLs or just purchases come through the door right at this moment. And that can be scary on their end. All this money going out the door, where's my return on this? And that's why, again, there's almost always this big push for give me the instant wins, um, things like that. And they absolutely should be a part of your strategy on some level. You want to make sure you're hitting those fronts. But the overall strategy should be about building a long-term sustainable path and journey that is constantly fueling and feeding the system. Again, it goes back to building trust and building a good rapport with your potential prospects and even just in the industry. You don't want to be known as the, the slummy software that, yeah, you come in at a low price and everyone uses you, but are you really getting value out of, the, out of them, right? You want to be known for something else. And this, again... This is a great transition, James, of kind of what you were talking about. Challenge number three is developing a unique market position for yourself. James, you actually have a really good story. What we were talking about is someone gave you the quote, there is already demand for our product. And I'll let you speak to this, but you pretty much said, okay, well, then that means there's other products just like yours in the market. So what are you doing about it? I would love for you to elaborate on that because I think it's a, a killer example. Yeah, and this this definitely feeds off point number two of developing a long-term, balancing quick wins versus long-term strategy. The short-term quick win is that, yeah, like you can throw up some paid search campaigns, get some intent data, and start capturing some leads, which yeah, we talk about lead quality and things like that all the time. But that is that is the, the quick win. But the long-term play and the long-term strategy has to be around what your unique market position is. And like you said, a common objection that we get now is there's already demand for our product. That's great. And that what that really means is that there's other products out there like yours in the market. So you actually have an uphill battle to define how you are unique and different, or else, like I said, you're just in that dogfight fighting for the same demand as everybody else. Versus if you're trying to create a subcategory for yourself, or there are certain types of companies that you work with that are better than others, like what, like you really have to figure out, again, we talk about this a lot, unique 
selling point and what your position in the market is because you have to niche down before you can scale up. And I think that that's a big concept that a lot of startups struggle with is that, Hey, you know, we we've created essentially when you're a startup, what you have done is you have created a shiny object. Yep. Right. And we, we talk all the time around shiny object syndrome. So it's great. There's a lot of people who have shiny object syndrome. You're going to be able to convert some of them, but you're never, you're also going back to point number one about resistance to change is that there are people who have shiny object syndrome who change and do whatever they want. And then there are the vast majority of everybody else who has a resistance. There's a resistance to change. And this is where you really have to hone in on those, what you're, what makes you different and get qualitative insights from customers, figure out what they like, what they don't like and build the messaging around everything that truly does make you different, not what you think makes you different. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of this comes back to, I mean, technically this is our fourth challenge here, uh, but innovation, we, we've talked about this a lot. Um, when Andy was with us, um, James and I have talked about this in various different ways and other podcasts, but don't stop innovating. One thing that we know, and I think most people would realize even as just consumers is that the D to C market industry, whatever you want to call it is always innovating. You see that with common day products. You see that with, you know, let's just even just speak to cereal. I mean, how much has Lucky Charms changed in, in the, I don't know, since I was a kid, what, 20 plus years I've been eating, um, 30 plus years I've been eating Lucky Charms, right? <laughs> They've gone from being this breakfast cereal that you'll watch from, from Saturday morning cartoons to what's their latest obstacle is this health craze, right? What are we actually putting in our bodies where they've had to go back and re-innovate their, their cereal to make it still taste good and be attractive to kids, but make parents happy, right? So this innovation in the D to C market is always innovating in various different ways. And I'd argue it's easier because there's a lot more you can do with a, a tangible product, especially when you're going to the consumer and less about a business yep. owner. One, price tends to be somewhat of a factor, but if someone wants a product, they'll save up for it. They'll do XYZ, Christmas list, birthday list, whatever it is. But B2B is almost stagnant in the innovation. Really, it's they're still doing digital transformations. We can add a little rainbow there or something, but like digital transformations, um, it's... Is that really innovating? No, I would argue it's not at all. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely crazy how slow B2B is to innovate. And I mean, the number one reason for that is they have there are longer sales cycles yep. and more bureaucracy across most companies. And they the other thing that I see a lot in B2B that is different than D2C is and this is coming from an agency side working with brands at both side on the D2C side, they just want like some, some, there is much more shiny object syndrome when it comes to 100%. new channels and new ad types and, and, and new things like that, because D2C companies are, I don't know. I, I feel like they're more focused on their product and there's a lot more passion tied to the product where again, one of the things we talk about, like, D2C companies are typically a little bit more difficult on the creative side where B2B companies just want to focus on what works versus the opposite 
And what we deal with when it comes to innovation is B2B companies want proof of everything that worked. Prove mm-hmm. me, prove to me this works, prove to me this works. And to be honest, like if you're a B2B company and you're just trying to get into TikTok right now, there's not, there's not a lot of proof of, con- we're getting into the point where there's a lot of proof of concept, but it's almost to the point where once you have proof of concept, you're a little bit late to the game. And I think that they've really realized that on the D2C side so that they're willing to test a lot more. And I think that there's an easy solution to making B2B more agile and more effective. And I, I think it's really comes down to something that we can take from the D2C side and it's how they, how they balance their budgets. So typically what we look for is uh, there's a, kind of a simple testing innovation framework where you have a certain percentage of your budget that is solely focused on testing. Think of it as like, 10 to 20% of your budget is going to be solely focused on trying new channels, new messaging, new audience, just that you're basically searching for that, whatever the next silver bullet is. And then based on that, there's going to be a select set of those programs that are, you find are effective. So then you move them to the next phase, which is the scale phase. So, Hey, we, you know, we've, gotten some positive signals here. We have, we've gotten a good return on this. Like, let's see how far that we can scale this. And then that's in the scale up phase where you're, this is probably 30 to 40% of where your marketing budget goes is things that you're looking to scale because you've gotten proof of concept and you understand that they work. And then the rest of your budget is stuff that is your tried and true stuff that has been operationalized. At this point, we've scaled it up. We know where the level of diminishing returns is. At this point, there's kind of minimal optimization that you're going to do for those campaigns um, because you know that they've been working. I, I think a big thing that you always see is operationalized first on the paid media side is probably paid search. Um, I think that there's this concept of like, hey, we're going to continuously do keyword research all the time and all of that's going to change. Where I think that that stuff changes much slower versus stuff in the prospecting demand gen like there's a lot more new things that you can try TikTok, twitter uh reddit like there's a lot of um a lot of things that some of the more innovative b2b companies are seeing a lot of success with right now versus the slower to develop b2b the, the slower to adopt not develop b2b companies are much more so focused on those demand capture activities that they have operationalized and they're trying to weasel out what little bit more that they could potentially get from those activities rather than focus on testing and innovating. And that's, that's see, a big that, change that I want to see. Absolutely. Well, that goes back to really what's your biggest obstacle is the change the resistance. Well, you're also your own biggest internal yeah. obstacle is you've gotten comfortable. LinkedIn is where all these business owners are. So let's stay there. We're going to take a nap in this nice, warm, cozy spot instead of testing out somewhere else. And that is where it comes down to is you got to break free of your chains. Um, and this is sounding so motivational. Put me on a cat poster or something, but like <laughs> break free. Don't be afraid to test. Now, again, don't go bankrupt in testing. Don't all of a sudden just, well, we got to find an extra $5,000 or something. But if there is some budget room in there, if you have some campaigns that aren't doing much for you, maybe try and take some of those, turn them off, try that budget elsewhere. At the end of the day, what what's the worst that happened is you learned. You learned your business does not do well on XYZ channel. Maybe you surprise yourself and 
wow, Reddit is actually kicking butt. Holy crap. TikTok has done amazing for our branding and helped fuel our funnel. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, this again, this, this is actually a good transition into our fifth challenge here, but uh, don't be afraid to make yourself uncomfortable. It's when you're uncomfortable is when you're going to learn and potentially find a scalable solution outside of it. So again, innovation there. But challenge number five is back to James' favorite topic, as we've talked about, measurement and attribution. We actually have a really good podcast on attribution. I suggest you go and listen to it. But the age-old question that we are consistently asked, and I think B2B marketers want the answer to right now and here, is which attribution model works? Yeah, so let's. I guess let's talk about something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, right? <laughs> yeah, this is, again, I think it's always going to be an uphill battle with B2B looking at attribution and compared to some of the things that you see in the D2C market because sales cycles are longer. There's so many tools, but the big thing to remember here is that if you're looking for quick wins, those quick wins are actually kind of easy to track because they're typically demand capture activities and all attribution tools, whether it be HubSpot, Google analytics, um, whatever may be that you're using, those tools are designed to look at demand capture activities. The problem is, is that if you're the CFO, you're going to think that all of your revenue is coming from paid search, organic search, and email maybe versus the things that you're doing to actually drive the growth of your business, which fall more on the demand generation side of things. So prospecting campaigns on LinkedIn, Facebook, the things that you are doing to educate and educate your customers and build your brand, those are much more difficult to track. And that's where the solution here is having a balance between, we've talked about this a lot of times, qualitative and quantitative insights. So it's great. We are able to track our demand capture channels really well. You know, let's add that. How did you hear about us form form field? Let's joining certain social groups, seeing what kind of social proof is out there to see where our audience is, what they're talking about, and what messaging of ours is resonating with them. Because those are the insights that drive true growth at the end of the day, not somebody's already searching for our brand and we converted them on a landing page where there was no information except for book a demo. That's a fundamental shift that we have to make. And it, it like we've talked about before, it goes back to measuring metrics that aren't necessarily attributed to a channel. So revenue pipeline with these tools, we're able to get some level of detail on what those sources are. But again, we always have to take it with a grain of salt and use the tools for what they're good for and optimize based off the information that you have. Absolutely. I think something we consistently go back to as well as marketing is half gut and half or half gut and creativity and then half data data is something that when used properly and understood properly will never lie the numbers are there so again pending everything is set up properly but the data is there you yep. can't dispute the data what is takes a little bit more gut and again your creativity is what you're putting out there sometimes yeah what you find might not work might not actually be a big attributor to the overall picture, but sometimes the the strangest things, these new, again, going back to it, innovative things can actually drive a customer further in their journey, potentially even faster 
no one truly knows until you do it. And without proper attribution, proper measurement tools, there's no true way to understand if something truly works. If we're talking about you need to be innovative, if we're talking about you need to develop your own market position or your own niche, the only way you're going to know if you're doing things well is proper measurement, proper attribution models. Again, there's so many of them. If we were to talk about it right, top two tend to be last click and view through. Sorry, I didn't mean no, to please. cut you off, but it, it comes back to having qualitative data sets and yep. quantitative data sets that inform your strategy because a quantitative data set is going to tell you what's happening, but it's not going to tell you why. And yep. that's where qualitative data is important because it gives, it gives you insight into the why. And that's, that's, that's actually, that's what's more important than what is happening. Cause we could all look at, what is happening all day long and scratch our heads, but we don't know why. We don't know why somebody's reading that blog post. We don't know why somebody's doing that search. And that's what we need to figure out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you were to kind of look at what is working, right, and you don't look into the why, odds are branded search is probably going to be way up there. You're going to see different things like that, but really. High intent keywords. Yeah. I mean, How did pretty... they find that, though? How did they know to search there? How did they know to use your yeah. name? And that's where you dig into the why. Um, I, you know, one thing I love to talk about is some people don't want to add the, how did you hear about us to their website? Some people don't want to add that to a sales call. Well, where did you find us? Um, because sometimes it just kind of distracts from the real goal here. So good way to also do it is find a sample size of your latest, let's just say 10 clients or customers and just send them a quick survey. And it can be anonymous, it doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, also utilizing NPS surveys externally can give you that idea as well. Again, that really goes back to everything we talk about is sometimes what you think is why they bought from you will, sh will shatter your mind of what they're truly, why they came to you, how they found you, what they liked, whatever it is. And so, all these five challenges, whether it's the customer intelligence, balancing the quick wins versus growth, long-term growth, developing unique market positions, innovation, measurement, and attribution, to be honest with you, they all relate to each other. All of these challenges will, will sync up with other ones, and there's never a true answer. There's just always objections or obstacles that you got to get past, whether it's on the customer side or on the internal side. So... That was a lot to unpack. Actually, it was a decently quick episode this time, which is actually kind of a big change for us. Usually the last couple have gone for at least, what, 50 minutes to over an hour. So hopefully yeah. you enjoy this little quicker, easier to digest podcast. I have a feeling we're going to be diving into some of these a little bit more in depth, potentially even next week. But again, James and I don't know everything. We're just tackling the challenges and obstacles that we see come up, that we're asked, that we're seeing conversations about, and we're just trying to hit them head on. And we're going to give you our opinion based on solutions we've been trying to implement or we have implemented. We also kind of share what hasn't worked. And so take all this with a grain of salt. We're here to help, but by all means, we are not experts, even if we claim we are. So um, just kidding. But we'll see you all next week. Thank you again for tuning in. And uh, yeah. Stay golden. Thanks for listening to Digital Banter. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes are uploaded every Friday. In the meantime, keep up with the show by following James and Zach on social media. Links are in the show notes.